Hey everybody! Welcome to Rock and Roll Shinsu Chu. This is episode 119, The Chew-Ins, the class of 2023. My name's Gabe Essel and I'm here with my co-hosts Dennis Levi Leach and Jonathan Getz. Good to see you guys. Really glad to, really happy to inter- induct this class to the Chew-Ins. Now every year we hold the Chew-In Hall of Fame inductions, which are intended to recognize artists that are unlikely to be enshrined in the actual Rock Hall of Fame. But we feel these artists are equally deserving of that recognition. This year, Jonathan inducts country and visual artist Terry Allen. Levi inducts British psychedelic pop group Ecstasy. And I'll induct English folk guitar virtuoso John Martin. And for the, oh, and that's what we're going to do. So (laughs) thank you so much. Um, And uh, we're really excited for this. This is always one of my one of my favorite times of the year, guys, um, because it, this is usually around the time that they release the Rock Hall nominations, uh, or at least I should say the inductees. And, you know, that makes for a lot of uh, fodder and, you know, all the all the magazines and, and websites, you know, say, oh, this person should have got in. This person didn't. Well, we said scrap all that. We're making our own Hall of Fame to induct um, popular music artists that that we really value. So it's always one of my favorite times of the year. And um, we've inducted, um, this is probably about our sixth or seventh class here, and we've really um, covered uh, a lot of ground, you know, um, covered really just a lot of genres of pop music and uh, rock and roll, and uh, I'm excited for this year's class. I'm, I'm excited so, to say that we have artists representing uh, each of those years of our inductions uh, with us here tonight. No, we yeah. don't. We don't. <laughs> uh, DJ Quick, if you're back there. Um, sorry, guys, I got, I got Tesla in the kitchen here. Um, yeah. Tesla and DJ Quick. Tesla make a pancakes <laughs> in your kitchen. Yeah, Tesla and DJ Quick, dream blunt rotation. Um, but, um, yeah, waiting, waiting for that Jeff Keith DJ Quick collab. Um, so anyway, God, that'd be great. Um, but anyway, we will start with Levi, who, um, gosh, is inducting such a great band here, Levi. So I'll, I'll, I'll let you take it away, man. Yeah, this year, uh, my inductee is the band XTC. And uh, for those listening out there, if you've never heard of them, that is the letters X, T, and C. They formed, um, and they all met. The main three guys that started were Andy Partridge, Colin Molding, and Terry Chambers on drums. And so they kind of kicked around and were kind of playing glam-type rock, which was popular in England at that time. And so they met a gentleman named Barry Andrews who played keyboards and had kind of like a steampunk vibe to him, which is really cool. If you watch some of the early footage of XTC uh, from their first album and tour, that album is called White Music, and it came out in 1977. And besides having kind of a punk new wave vibe, like I said, it's very steampunk in the style mm-hmm. that Barry Andrews he plays these organs that look like they're about to fall apart. Like they're made of wood and like these old weird, they, they literally look like they could collapse on stage because he's beating the shit out of them as he plays. And so there's some really cool footage on YouTube. You can watch of him. It's all of the keyboards that Keith Emerson blew up and he just taped them back together. <laughs> right? yes. yes. Yeah. It's like duct, duct tape together. That makes sense. Like and all kinds of shit. And so, 
like I said, that first album came out in 1977 called White Music, and in reviews, one of them described them as Captain Beefheart meets the Archies, <laughs> which is a, which is a very unique uh, blend, I guess, if you will. The big, uh, I guess, hit, if you will, off that first album is called This Is Pop, and so after that, in 1978, they came out with their second album, Go To, and at that point... Um, you know, Andrew or uh, Andy Partridge was the main songwriter and vocalist of the band. And Barry Andrews was kind of getting fed up with that. He wanted to be also a singer and songwriter for the band. And so he kind of tried to stage like a little mutiny uh, and trying to get Colin Molding and Terry Chambers to go against Andy. And so basically, you know, Andy threw him out of the band. And so he, he went on. And so he made that second record with them, but then they, he left right after that. And so in 1979, they found instead of a keyboardist to replace him, they found another guitarist and multi-instrumentalist by the name of Dave Gregory. And so he joined as mainly on second guitar at first. And uh, when they brought him in to do like a uh, audition, they asked him to play This Is Pop. Like, that's his audition. Play mm-hmm. This Is Pop off our first album. Mm-hmm. And he looked at them and said, well, do you want the album or the single version? <laughs> and so Andy Partridge is like, well, shit. Now we're, <laughs> we're going to have, like, an actual musician in the band. <laughs> like, this is, you know, I don't know. Wait. And so in 1979, after Dave joined, they made their album Drums and Wires which had a big hit at the time called Making Plans for Nigel that Colin Molding wrote. And so I forgot to say, when they originally got signed to that first uh, album on Virgin Records for white music, their deal was for 20 years they signed. Virgin basically screwed the hell out of them. (laughs) And so... To me, that's insane to sign a 20-year deal. And so um, they made the Making Plans for Nigel song. And so, like I said, Colin Molding was the singer and writer of that song. And him and Andy Partridge had a setup to where whoever wrote each song also sang it. They weren't, they weren't like, you know, McCartney and Lennon sharing everything. It was like, you wrote it, you're singing it. And so... When that song, Making Plans for Nigel, got airplay and became a hit, Virgin was kind of pushing Colin Molding to be like the leader of the band, mm-hmm. where it had always been Andy Partridge. Mm-hmm. And so that was kind of the start of some friction in the band that would then carry on through the whole rest of the band. And so the album, Drums and Wires, was uh, noted that it was recorded at Townhouse Studios. And that was one of the first albums done there in this giant room that's made out of stone that they were known for. And it became the sound of the 80s. All the drums, like In the Air Tonight by Phil Collins, uh, any of the big drum sounds of the 80s, like the police records, were all recorded there at Townhouse Studios. And Drums and Wires was kind of the, the first to do that. And so in 1980, they released their album Black Sea, 
which had the minor hit Respectable Street. And on that tour from 1980 to 81, they were the opening act for the police. And mm-hmm. so Maybe I believe at that time, uh, Stuart Copeland, the drummer of the police, his brother was either the manager for XTC or somehow involved with Virgin. Mm-hmm. And so it was a, you know, can you imagine those two bands touring together? That would have been a, besides being an awesome show, there would have been some crazy backstage, I would think, oh, going yeah. on between yeah. the police being, you know, a unit of guys who fought a lot and then ecstasy who also were getting a reputation for that as well. And so in 1982, their album English Settlement came out, which had a bigger hit written by Andy Partridge called Senses Working Overtime, which has kind of uh, pop leanings, power pop style vibes. And so they started a huge tour because it was getting airplay on the radio. It was getting airplay on TV. And Andy Partridge had always kind of had panic attacks and anxiety issues ever since he was a child. And so he'd been taking Valium ever since he was 12. And so his girlfriend at the time, or wife, decided to just take him off of it, cold turkey. And he agreed to do it. And so, like, it spiraled him into even more anxiety and panic attacks. They had to cancel the tour right before going out for the English settlement tour. And so then there was all these rumors in the press that Andy died and like people were doing like tributes to him and stuff. (laughs) And, you know, pre-internet, it was like, you know, all you had to go on was rumors and any clips you saw in the newspapers or whatnot. And so he basically refused to tour ever again after that. And in 1983, 1984, Besides him having all of his anxiety and panic attacks, they were having all kinds of money problems because of the Virgin deal they signed. And all their royalties got frozen for 10 years after that. So besides being in a 20-year deal, any of the small amount of royalties they were going to get were frozen. And so it was so bad at that point that Colin Molding and Terry Chambers and Dave Gregory all worked side jobs at like a car rental dealership. And uh, it got to the point then in 1983 where Terry Chambers decided to leave the band, the, the original drummer. And so in 1983, they came out with the album Mummer, which had a small hit called Love on a Farm Boy's Wages. It, uh, had poor sales though. And so it didn't really help them get out of any of their debt with Virgin. And so they released another album in the hopes that that might help because they had to keep releasing records because of the deal they'd signed. Mm -hmm. And so they released another album in 1983 called the big express, which again had very poor sales. And so at that point they were all kind of, burnout on being ecstasy you know the the deals they had signed the money that wasn't coming in and the lack of big hits and so virgin was kind of breathing down their neck on that and so in 1984 they decided to do a side project something fun called the dukes of stratosphere and so what that is is it was a 60 psych type 
think like Beatles magical mystery tour type of a vibe. Mm -hmm. And so they decided that they would go in the studio and they would only use vintage sixties gear and that all songs had to be recorded within two takes. And so they did this album called 25 o'clock, which is like an ode, I guess a nod to like kind of 60s psychedelic era album names and stuff like that. Sure. Yeah. That's so, right. And much, so yeah. it came out and sold better than any ecstasy album had ever sold. Mm -hmm. And so while they thought that was really cool and they, they said it was like the most fun they've ever had in a studio ever. It was also kind of disheartening for the fact that like they, it wasn't, you know, they were never advertised as ecstasy. And so when that album first came out, there were rumors in 1984 that it was like some lost recorded album that was found. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and like so a record they, from the 60s. That yes, somebody had, correct. Yeah. yeah. yeah and right. so they, again, they're not touring. So they never could tour any of those songs. And so Virgin was like, let's go back into the studio as XTC and record another album. And so in 1986, they recorded Skylarking, which became one of their biggest studio albums. And it had a lot of that psychedelic power pop vibes that the Dukes of Stratosphere had, which at that point, it changed that style of the band. From then on out, it was more of that psychedelic 60s type of a sound. Mm -hmm. And uh, that album, Skylarking, in 1986, was produced by Todd Rundgren. And how that happened was because Virgin forced them to use a producer and they had to the, also the stipulation was they had to pick a producer from the United States because Virgin was trying to get them on the radio in USA. Mm. And so they were given a list of names and the only person that anyone in the band had ever heard of was Todd Rundgren. <laughs> And Colin Molding and Dave Gregory were like, oh, yeah, we've heard of him. You know, we I, we like a couple of his songs for sure. And so that's how they ended up working with him. And that album is considered, like I said, one of their best albums. And I would put it up there. I like yeah. that album a lot. And um, it also became another friction point where Andy Partridge and Todd Rundgren, like, hated each other. Mm. They did not work together well at all. And uh, any chances of trying to do like a follow-up album with him was dashed. And so uh, the first single from the album was called Grass, which did make it onto the radio and college radio uh, lists across the United States. And a lot of those college radio DJs started flipping it and playing the B-side, which is a song called Dear God which has some um, definitely controversial lyrics towards uh, atheism and the, the purpose of God and is there a God. Mm -hmm. And uh, it be kind of came like a cult radio college anthem, so much so that one guy at a college radio station somewhere in the United States broke into the studio and like – made like forced the people at either knife or gunpoint to like repeatedly play the song. <laughs> it, it stirred that much of emotion in him. 
And so that album sold fairly well for them. It didn't sell as well as the Dukes of Stratosphere, but for an XTC record, it was doing all right. And so in 1987, they went back into the studio and Virgin was like, well, let's do another Dukes of Stratosphere album then. And so they're like, okay, we'll do that. And so they recorded their second Dukes of Stratosphere album called Sonic Sunspot. And both of those are spelt with P's at the beginning. So P-S-O-N-I-C-P-S-U-N-S-P-O-T. Sonic Sunspot. And again, that album outsold any XTC record that had been released up to that. Even with abnormal spelling, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so in 1989, they were due to make another record for Virgin, because like I said, they owe Virgin their lives, basically. And so in 1989, they released Oranges and Lemons, which was also a very popular album for them. And has some really cool 60s cover art. It, oh, yeah. When I remember seeing that album in 1989, because I think my sister had it, mm-hmm. and I remember thinking that it was old and it was from yeah, the 60s sure. or something, because it looks it looks like it's from the 60s. And so that album they recorded in L.A., and the reason being was because it was the only place they could find that had cheap studio rates at that time. Mm-hmm. And so... The single off that album, Mayor of Simpleton, actually broke into the top 100 in the U.S., which was pretty pretty good for XTC. And uh, it was the only single in the U.S. that ever charted, mm-hmm. which is kind of crazy. And so uh, in 1992, they followed up Orange and Lemons with their album Nonsuch, which was actually nominated for a Grammy in 1993 for Best Alternative Album, which it's so funny. You know, I don't know if I would ever consider that necessarily an alternative album, but at that point in the music industry, they were labeling basically anything yeah. that wasn't like gangster rap yeah, or country sure. music was was called alternative. Right. And so um in 1993, after the release of uh Nonsuch, they basically went on strike against Virgin. And so at that same time, they were on strike with their label. Prince was on strike with his label. George Michael was on strike with his label. And while Prince and George Michael got loads of press for it, XTC basically got no press at all for it. And so they, you know, they didn't have a lot of ground to stand on. And so at that point, they kind of just, you know, at that point, essentially the band basically dies. And so In 1997, Dave Gregory basically decides to leave. He's like, we're done. You know what I mean? We've, we're not going to be able to get out of this Virgin deal. We're, you know, let's just call it. Mm -hmm. And so from that point on, it basically kind of became the Andy Partridge band as far as releases, because at this point still, they never, they never toured again after 1982. And so he basically became in charge of their back catalog and any demos and B-sides and things like that. And so Andy Partridge has kind of released a steady supply of that ever since then. Um, There's a whole group of albums he released over the course of a wide array of years called the Fuzzy Warbles, 
which were like all these demos and B-sides and alternate tracks and things that he would compile and release. But it's kind of a sad ending to the band considering how great they were at their peak of the oh, yeah. 70s and early 80s. But um, I still think with all that, they are way more than deserving to be in the Chew in Hall of Fame. Amen to that. Yeah, it was almost like a a 60s sound updated for the 80s. You know what I mean? Like, well, I mean, during that period, yeah. And I was, Levi, I was kind of thinking, I, I don't know if they ever crossed paths with that scene. I, and, you know, there were some other bands in Britain in the 80s, late 70s, early 80s, that were kind of reviving some of the 60s sound, kind of like the Soft Boys, you know, kind of had yeah. some of that. Yeah. Um, and then in America, you kind of had the, it, it probably wasn't as I don't know if it was as popular or the bands got as big as maybe somebody like ecstasy or the soft boys like did they did in England, but like the, the Paisley underground scene in, uh, oh, in, yeah, in, yeah. in California, you know, yeah. I mean, that's, that's kind of a similar, similar vibe to it the around the Deuce same era. Stratosphere basically like preceded that. Okay. Like yeah. the, that first Dukes of Stratosphere album basically, you know, it turned it a little bit of a light on to that whole Paisley underground scene. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one thing that I failed to mention is I would almost guarantee without XTC, there's no Britpop. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Yeah. No. They, oh, yeah, they're, they're the precursors to Oasis, to Blur, to a lot of those bands that later became popular in the 90s kind of doing throwback style Absolutely. British music. And yeah. so, yeah, they definitely deserve more credit for that than what I think they get. Absolutely. You know, and also I, I heard when, when I was listening to them, to me, it was, I guess they were, they were sort of emerging around the same time. I, I thought like a British talking heads for the earlier stuff, you know, it kind of, yeah. Yeah. That, it has definitely the good. new wave vibe on that early stuff for sure. It, yeah. Um, yeah, really, really cool. I, I like of, of the records that, I mean, like the, the only two before this episode that I was, I would say I was really familiar with and I'd listened to, you know, more than, you know, once or twice was the, was it the, uh, the one with the daggers, sorry, the, um, the, the one from like 79 that's got the cover, you know, the, the Oh, uh, drums and wires, drums and wires, excuse yeah. me. Yeah. And then, um, and then also lemon, you know, lemons and oranges. I, the same with you, you know, I always had recognized the album art and, uh, had, had, had heard that one too, but I really liked, uh, I really liked black sea a lot. Oh yeah. I that thought it was actually. really good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's really, really, really great band. To but, me, it's crazy that they never sold as many records as I feel like they probably should have. And I don't yeah. know if, if some of that was with Virgin not, you know, not giving them enough money for support. Mm -hmm. Or, you know what I mean? Because to me, those records sound like they should be more popular. You know oh, yeah. I mean? when you they're, go, they're really well made. Yeah. I mean, if you go from Drums and Wires to Black Sea to English Settlement... To I mean, I will say Mummer and Big Express weren't the greatest, but Skylarking in 86 to me sounds like, why was that album not like gigantic, mm -hmm. you know? And so there were like inferior albums that made it, you know, much, that right, were much bigger yeah. than that one. Yeah. Inferior albums by good groups, you know, uh, that were, I, I think, 
you know that al- those albums are stronger than some of some of those. Yeah, well, and I appreciate the the first two records also for their like I said like the the light lightly punky kind mm-hmm. of pop that it has. I uh, what's funny is I had already picked them to be our inductee for mine on this year and about two weeks ago at a yard sale i found like a mint condition copy of the first album on vinyl oh wow yeah and so i was like this is freaking awesome and so i brought it home and listened to it for about two days straight and yeah i mean it's like you said they have definitely talking heads vibes and uh that whole i I'm not going to say Blondie, but like you, you could see like Blondie, the talking heads and that early ecstasy, like touring together. Like totally. it would have melded together for, yeah. for that sound. Definitely. And so, um, you know, you could throw maybe the cars in early cars a little bit. Sure. Sure. And so, yeah, I, uh, I hope you guys enjoyed listening to some of their music and. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that there's also a photo of uh, the Talking Heads and, and XTC out there. Uh, oh, really? Okay. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I, they're just like hanging out, not on the stage. Yeah. Or yeah. I would yeah. imagine they appreciated each other's music. You know, I don't. They were coming around at the same time, so I, I don't necessarily know if they were aware. You know, there there's like an influence there necessarily, but sure. Yeah. But because they were kind of happening at parallel times but i'm i'm yeah. curious levi do you know with that 20-year record deal like okay so most record deals are for a number of albums right so how does a 20-year record deal work like how often were they expected to pump out an album i don't know more of the details than that okay. i wish i did because you know <laughs> i think in hindsight they all would never sign that again no, if they had yeah. another choice <laughs> um yeah and so I like I said also, but besides signing that, the other major turn point in the band was when he got off of the volume and decided to never tour again. Mm-hmm. I think that truly held them back. Yeah, um, you isn't know, that where a band usually makes its money? Where this this album sales absolutely. usually pay back the record company and touring absolutely. pays the band, right? Yep, mm-hmm. touring and merch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, it's, uh, that makes it tough. Yeah. I, I, I just, you know, it's, it's a, it's a business decision for sure. Yeah. And so, you know, they talk about that some in, uh, there's multiple documentaries about the band out there and uh, available on YouTube. And in the one they talked about how Colin Molding and Dave Gregory and Terry Chambers at first, you know, they were kind of thinking that he was just doing it out of selfishness, you know? And so it was kind of, it, it, it was a tough decision for the whole band. And he got the other guys on board with the idea that, you know, now we can use the studio as an instrument and we can Mm. create albums how we want them to be. Because at that point they had always wrote music that we have to make live. We have to write songs that we can somehow recreate, recreate on a stage. Yeah. Right. And so with that being thrown out, you know, I, I understand the, the freedom that's involved with that, mm-hmm. but it's definitely a business decision at the end of the day. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Not easy. 
Well, good good stuff um, there, and and just yeah, just a whole um, because they they called it quits, you know, um, at least as ecstasy in '92. The whole catalog is really pretty strong, you know. Like Levi said, it's got you know a little bit like any band, a little peaks and valleys, but um, you know, I, I would say like like I really I listen to most of their catalog. I'd say at least a good ninety percent of it for the episode, and I I, I liked I, I found something to appreciate on every one of their records. Yeah, likewise. Yeah, you know, yeah. yeah. So. yeah. cool. Well, let's let's go. Uh, Let's uh, let's 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 cross the pond, um, and then we'll go back to the pond for my, over the pond for mine. <laughs> let's go to Texas, gets um, with uh, your uh, your inductee. Tell us more about Terry Allen. Sure. So yeah, you know there there's some artists that um, when I listen to them, I, I kind of get fired up and almost angry at how mm. like great their art is. Sure. And and I and I'm angry at like how we aren't constantly talking about them or mm-hmm. how like how, how they aren't quoted by the press for their perspective in all matters like social or geopolitical. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> and, and I'm mad at how I like I didn't know about them earlier in my life or mm-hmm. or how I might forget to listen to them for like weeks or months at a time and you get back to it and you're like, Oh my god, where have you been? And so, you know, and with past Chew and Hall of Fame inductions, I felt this way about like Fu Manchu and JJ Kale and and honestly I feel this way about these artists more so than more recognized artists who might be in the official rock hall like Dylan sure. or Springsteen or PJ or who for all intents and purposes have been given their due. And that's not to say, you know, my my nominees aren't recognized. Rather I just think they should be recognized more. And I guess that's kinda of at the heart of what we're practicing right, with our, right. our annual Hall of Fame directions. You're, you're an agreeable company here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> that being said, uh you know, my nominee this year, the artist who is so good it makes me mad is is the aforementioned country uh, country music artist Terry Allen, and uh, while while Terry's been recognized even in the mainstream press for his accomplishments not just with music but also with his visual arts and even radio theater, um, he's far from a household name really. And yeah. and Terry's visual art visual art output is prolific and and represented by dozens of art museums, including MoMA and LACMA and even the Nelson Atkins here in Kansas City. Um, but I won't I won't dive into his visual arts here as much. Just know that it's connected with his his musical output. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Terry grew up in, in uh, Lubbock, Texas. His dad, uh, a former catcher for the St. Louis Browns, incidentally, uh, opened a uh, a venue and brought to town the likes of Little Richard and Elvis, among many others. And uh, meanwhile, his mom was a piano player and kicked out of uh, college for playing jazz. And uh, so she she taught Terry his first song. And after that, she said he was on his own (laughs) to to learn the rest. So tough love indeed. Um, But all that to say, you know, Terry was surrounded by creativity from an early age and and. uh, he attended art school in California, uh, where he joined a group of students who dove headfirst into writing stories. Um, and Terry, along with his wife his, and his, I mean, his girlfriend, since he was like 12 years old, uh, Joe Harvey, uh, they wrote a radio show, which led to his first album uh, called Juarez. Um, I was introduced to Terry's music when I stumbled upon his second album, 1979's Lubbock on Everything. Uh, I was intrigued by song titles like The Wolfman of Del Rio and Truckload of Art and New Delhi Freight Train. Uh, and uh, 
but I was I, I was still completely just caught off guard by the songwriting and the lyrics. I I never heard anything quite like it before. You know, Terry's storytelling is is wholly unique. He says things in songs that can make you blush, but then immediately make you think. You know, why haven't I heard anybody anybody else sing about this sort of stuff? And I think the answer is that Terry has the fully formed vision of a true visual artist. And he's not afraid to break the rules or assume his audience can't keep up. Um, and over the course of his dozen or so albums, Terry's reprised melodies and songs and characters. And so there's a thread that runs throughout. Uh, it's all one song, as, as Neil Young once said. Uh, but... The tactics are constantly shifting, and as as with any true and restless artist, uh, at many points uh, Terry's music feels like avant-garde country. I think mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. David Byrne uh, uh, wrote of Alan's work, "quote It's it's familiar sounding, but at the same time something's off, and that something is what intrigues. It's what keeps you paying attention, and uh, that that is definitely what keeps me coming back to it." And over the years, uh, as you can tell, Terry's artistry has been recognized by his peers. Little Feet recorded New Delhi Freight Train. Mm. Uh, David Byrne is a close friend and had Alan collaborate uh, for the film True Stories. And Guy Clark asked Alan to turn his ashes into a sculpture. But, you know, for me, what, what sets Alan apart is that while his music is rooted in a, a genre as relatively humble as country music, it turns out his talents are, are just as welcome in a honky-tonk as they are in the Museum of Modern Art mm. and you know, Terry's art forms are down to earth while his achievements are otherworldly. And that's a rare combination indeed. You know, just like when you like something so much, it makes you mad. <laughs> and mm -hmm. for me, that's something is Terry Allen. Uh, nice man. I, I, Jonathan, I think I told you this when we were, um, when we were talking about this episode, um, prepping for it, I, I, I was lucky enough to, I was see him in concert. Um, and I, I guess I, it was one of those things I didn't know how lucky I was at the time because I'm embarrassed to say this would have been around like 2005, 2006, somewhere around that time. And I went for the guy he was opening up with guy, the guy, his name was guy <laughs> Clark. Um, right. And, um, you know, so I was, I was on a real big kick, you know, of folks like guy Clark, Towns Van Zandt, Rodney Crowell, you know, Steve Earle, that whole crew of, uh, you know, mostly Texas singer songwriter guys. And, um, I didn't know anything about him. You know, I just, sure. so yeah. I got, I got there on time. It was at the old town school of folk music. And, um, you know, this guy, Terry Allen was on piano. He was on piano most of the night. He may have played guitar a couple times, but I remember him being on piano most of the show. And yeah, man, I was, I was really like knocked out, you know, I was like, wow, this guy's, this guy's great. And then I want to say he came out and played a song with a guy sure. as well. Um, so I was really fortunate. I have to, you know, I'm embarrassed to say I, I did not know his music at all prior to that, that show. Many don't. Uh, many yeah, many, many right. people in the know don't. Yeah. 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 And I considered myself, you know, sort of in the know at that time, yeah. you know? Yeah. So... So yeah, it was it was a real blessing to to be able to kind of stumble upon his music like that, and uh, yeah, it's it's great. I, I don't know if he's ever collaborated with him, but 
Yeah, they some have. of his songs. So yeah, I mean, yeah, him and Guy. I'm sorry, but I'm talking about I'm talking about get my ready to introduce another oh. artist. Um, I do you know if he's ever worked with Randy Newman? Because it seems like know, they would. But, yeah, they would kind of. I think it would gel. You yeah, know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And they were yeah. in L.A. at the same time. Obviously, Randy Newman's kind of always been in yeah. L.A. But yeah. yeah, I could see him. You know, obviously these guys are are different songwriters too. But I I could see him influencing people like like a Robert Earl Keane. And a Todd Snyder, you know, mm-hmm. um, I can hear. He's collaborated of... with Ryan Bingham. Ryan Bingham's had oh, okay. a record. Yeah. Okay, yeah. cool, very cool. So yeah, um, it's 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 really good stuff. I, um, I I wonder, like, back like, did he tour pretty extensively? No, like back in no, no, okay. no. Yeah, he uh, he. It, it's said that he he never regularly toured. He was just more committed to recording albums, making art, and just like being with his family. Yeah, he, he right. just he knew that the road would tear people up and tear families yeah. apart, and he just yeah. wasn't down for that. Which makes yeah. it all the more intriguing. It's like, whoa! Like you were, you know, this a uh, full on artist, and you just again you weren't going to play by the rules. Yeah. Good stuff, Levi. Yeah. Had you uh, had, yeah. had you been familiar with his work? I, not until uh, the one episode we had done where Jonathan had discussed the Lubbock on Everything album. I forgot what episode that was, mm. but um, that was when I had first listened to him. And yeah, I the the Wolfman of Del Rio is a great song. I, uh, yeah. That might be my favorite song of his. And so um, he was just of that time of Texas where I would love to build a time machine to go back to Texas. <laughs> Oh yeah, about like about like seventy land, about like seventy four yeah, or yeah. so. I mean, yeah, you know Terry Allen and Towns Van Sant and Guy Clark and Rodney Crow, Rodney Crow, all those guys who like were in. Yeah, <laughs> they were all in that area of Texas at that time, and so you know there was just a whole scene there that I don't know. You know, it may be. It doesn't seem like it's as documented as well as, say, maybe San Francisco or Detroit and Motown uh, or even, like, Memphis or obviously Nashville for country. But, like, without that part of Texas and all those songs from that era, you know, the there would be a big hole in, in the musical canon of the united states the best the best film documentation levi of that and it doesn't focus exclusively on that scene is heartworn highways oh yeah yeah great yeah and it's and again it's it's not exclusive to that like like charlie daniels and david allen coe are in heartworn highways as well and you know they they go to tennessee too um but there is yeah it does you know there's that that really cool like what and that was kind of like lost footage for you yeah (laughs) that christmas eve party from like 75 or 76 at guy clark's house yeah i want to party with that crew (laughs) yeah (laughs) steve earl's like 20 yeah yeah it's uh yeah i like there's that there's one team where like like guy like breaks the wine glass and he like drinks from the broken glass (laughs) (laughs) yeah and they they do that silent night like steve young is there too it's so it's so fucking good. So yeah. yeah, if Terry Allen hopefully was nearby and hanging out too, because yeah, yeah. And for everyone out there right now, uh, you can stream for free on Tubi the Terry Allen documentary called oh, Every. Cool. It's called Everything for All Reasons, and it came out in 2019. Mm-hmm. And cool. uh, 
it's like kind of part documentary, part live music, mm-hmm. like featured. It's like interspersed. It's not necessarily a concert film. Yeah. And it's not like 100% documentary, but yeah, it's but a it's really just one cool, concert. Yeah. yeah it's, yeah. it's a really cool, uh, introduction for mm-hmm. everyone and talks about his art and, uh, yeah, I, yeah. I enjoyed that. And Ryan Bingham does play with him on that that mm-hmm. concert as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just an hour long, so it's it's pretty modest in that perspective, from that perspective. Yeah. Um the everything everything that they try to tell. But mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, that was, I enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well we'll um Yeah, good good stuff there. Um you know, I'm gonna hop back uh go back across the pond now um we're doing our in our uh british texas british sandwich here um um to uh a guy that whose music's meant a lot to me over the last few years and i'm, I'm really just kind of sad to say that i i discovered him right around the time of his death unfortunately um john martin that's m-a-r-t-y-n who died in early 2009 um, I guess before I get into some of his bio and his music, I'll I'll talk a little bit about how I discovered him, and it was you know nothing you know nothing you know earth shattering or anything, but it was certainly an earth shattering clip that I saw. Um, you know, I was on YouTube one night, and I don't know if I was just watching like you know kind of everybody's trying to find like does does footage of Nick Drake playing exist? You know what I mean? <laughs> like one of those. I feel like I'm gonna find it. You know, one day gonna be the person that finds it, even though people have like devoted their whole lives to it and can't find it. Um, I was probably looking for something like that, or maybe like maybe like watching like a you know Nick Drake documentary or something like that. And um, you know the suggested videos scroll up in the side, and I saw this video for. Um, you know, so John Martin, may you never. And it was, I noticed it was from the old gray whistle test show and any, any artist that was on that show, you know, it's in the seventies. I'm all about, you know, so I'm like, I'll check this out. And it was his performance from, I think 73. Um, he was, um, playing in support of his solid air record that came out that year. Um, his performance of may you never gosh, you know, there's, it was one of those moments where um, it really just kind of stopped me cold. You know, I, it's, I, I think it's one of the best live performances of a song, any song I've ever seen in my life. If you watch that video, the playing, the singing, he's just, he's just, he's in the zone. You know, he, you notice he doesn't open his eyes once during the song. Um, You know, he, he has like no stage presence, but at the same time he has, abundant stage presence you know what i mean mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. And, and, yeah I, I don't know how to describe it other than that oh yeah he, he's one of those artists that just draws eyes to him oh yeah absolutely and um so i was just like who the fuck is this guy you know like this is amazing <laughs> and uh not a word i use lightly and um you know then i, I discovered well you know obviously a suggested youtube clip he was kind of a quote-unquote contemporary of nick drake and Sounds like one of Nick Drake's few friends as well, because um, they, they, you know, they played in those circles. So that got me into it. And then I, I look on his Wikipedia page, you know, uh, you know, shortly thereafter, I'm like, oh, shit, the guy just died. I didn't even know it. You know, like <laughs> so he died in he died in early 09. And, and that got me into his catalog. You know, I bought Solid Air, um, which is always, you know, I'll, I'll get into his discography more so in a, in a little bit, but is is an album that really just knocked me out because um, 
May You Never is 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 kind of a folky song um, to a degree. And uh, and Solid Air is really just a I think it's one of the best nighttime albums ever, particularly the title track is um, the quintessential night song to me. That and Low Spark of High Heel Boys. I can only listen to those two songs at night, Solid Air and Low Spark of High Heel Boys. I cannot listen to those songs during the day. Uh, Same thing with um, uh, Mazzy Stars, uh, uh, Into Dust as well. I can't listen to that during the day either. But uh, yeah, you know, so it was very evocative of night. But um, John Martin was, uh, he's, he's, originally scottish um he was kind of kind of um went back and forth between glasgow and 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 england he was raised by his his mom and i'm sorry his um his dad and his grandmother his mom was nearby but not really a part of his life and he actually wasn't born john john martin um his name was ian david mcgeechee um which um or I don't know if maybe I need to roll. It needs to be more British. I don't know if it's McGetchy, McGeechy. Um, anyway, not a name that you know he thought was really going to drive album sales. So he um, he went with uh, John Martin, and most people thought it was because of Martin guitars, but he actually didn't play a Martin guitar, uh, and he spelled it M A R T Y N. Um, and he's you know he started playing as a as a teenager, and um, in in Scotland, and um, he was influenced a lot by this guy that up until recently was kind of new to me named Davy Graham, um, who, uh, was really kind of a pioneer in the kind of British folk scene that started in the mid sixties. And I would say, you know, really had its, its peak years from the, the mid sixties to the, to the early to mid, early to mid seventies, um, which people like Nick Drake, were a part of um, Burt Janch, uh, Wiz Jones, um, another chewing inductee from a few years ago, Fairpoint Convention, and Richard and Linda Thompson. You know all these people, and um, all of them were were really kind of during that time in the in the late sixties. They were all kind of there was like a lot of rivalries because I'm reading a John Mar- a John Martin uh, book right now, um, really good book. Uh, called Small Hours, which is named after one of his songs, The Long Night of John Martin, it's called. And um, a really good book. And it's, um, sorry, I always forget the author's name. Yeah, Graham Thompson, who wrote, uh, I haven't read it, but who apparently wrote a pretty good book about Kate Bush, too, a few years ago. Um, And it's it's really well done. And and it describes, you know, the scene around Glasgow and then also, you know, going down to to England as well. as really like kind of these guys, they were all in reverence of, of, of Davy Graham who wrote the, you know, who played this song called Angie that was like, I guess from a guitar perspective, you know, pretty ahead of its time. Um, and, and Graham style. Now Graham is kind of new to me. Um, I found out about all those other guys that I mentioned first, other guys and girls that I mentioned first, uh, before I found Davy Graham, but he was really kind of the first guy of the Brit folk scene. Uh, like, you know, as early as like 64, 65, right around there. And obviously, you know, Martin heard somebody like him when he was a teenager and that just really blew him away and kind of set the course. And, you know, Martin was one of those guys like, you know, play guitar. Like when he was 16, he played guitar for like 15 hours a day. You know what I mean? Just shit like that. Right. I mean, obviously, if you heard him play, you, you got to get good somehow. Right. And you're, yeah, it, it involves practicing. So um, he, um, you know, played around, um around England and, and then um, 
met uh, met a woman who, uh, you know, right around the he had had a couple records out. And he was married to kind of like a uh, getting ready to marry like a high school sweetheart. And he met this um, this woman named 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 Beverly uh, Kettner, and um, she was kind of part of that scene as well. Burt Jantz has got an album from 1965, and she's on the cover of it. Um, and so, you know, and she was a singer as well. So, you know, he hooked up with her and, um, you know, they, you know, really young, they got, they got married, they were only like 20. And then they, they put out a couple albums together, um, which are, are kind of, you know, very, very folky. Um, and they're good. They're good records. They're really that, good records. Were they called like Stormbringer? Stormbringer. Yeah. Stormbringer. Right. Yeah. Stormbringer. Yeah. And then, you know, they had, they'd even moved to, um, to, to Woodstock, New York for a little while as well. And he was, you know, Jonathan, you mentioned, you know, he's hanging out with like LeVon Helm and, and, and those guys as well. Um, I haven't gotten that far in the book yet. <laughs> um, but, you know, they uh, his even though he's associated with the Brit folk movement, as they call it, and that included all those people that I just mentioned. Um, I think of him as more as like a if I had to describe him, I would consider him a jazz folk guitarist. Sure. You know, um, I would say that he's got more in touch with a jazz guitarist than than, you know, what I what I consider a folk guitarist. And um, while I think all of those guys that I mentioned are really innovative and 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 I don't play guitar, but they're I've attempted, but I don't play it. And you guys do their tunings. I think some of the shit that Martin did is just just on another fucking of another world, man. I mean, some of the stuff that he's done. Oh, yeah, and absolutely. His playing um, style. Yeah. You know, I think he got to a point where he didn't want to be maybe pigeonholed as no. just like yeah. a British folk guitarist. Yeah. And right. so he was like, where can I take it or where can it take me? And so, yeah, I mean, he got into the e- Echoplex. Yeah, duh. Delay, you know? Yeah. And, and, you know, he was doing, no one was putting effects in front of acoustic guitars then. No, he was like you know, he was he, like Keller Williams before Keller Williams, you know. Right, <laughs> yeah, I thing, mean, right? He, he's definitely the I would call him a pioneer for that. Definitely, fact. like I said, no one was putting effects units in front of acoustic guitars. Yeah, and between him and Nick Drake, they had some of the craziest tunings on the planet between the two of them. Um, God, to be I, in the, I, to be in the room with those two, Jesus. I've yes. attempted to tune some of those Nick Drake tunings, and you have to have. You have to have a guitar that has a neck that can handle some of those. I can endure and, that. Yeah. And and then the strings, the the you'll snap strings, you know. And so, yeah, yeah. I mean, those guys were they were ahead of the game when it came to those things. And yeah, um, yeah he uh, he he. Like I said, I think he just decided to wear like. I don't want to just be Burt Janch or whoever else. Yeah, the, right. the a standard folk guitarist and yeah. so uh, from that point on he changed his whole path he was always looking for some type of rhythm that hadn't been discovered yet you know what i mean like yeah. that, that that that's the best way i could describe it and and levi mentioned his work with the echoplex and and tape delays and different guitar effects and dub that actually kind of came 
in the, about with him as early as the late 70s. Um, I mentioned that album that he put out in 73 called Solid Air, which I think if you're unfamiliar with him, that's probably the best place to start. It's probably, if I have to say, and I'm not always crazy about this term, the quintessential John Markham record. That's probably it, Solid Air. But um, his, uh, after Solid Air, he put out, you know, an album Inside Out and um, Sunday's Child as well, which are, which are good records. But he, like Levi said, you know, had kind of become disillusioned with with what he was doing and, and being pigeonholed as, as just sort of a folk guitarist. So he took some time off and he went to Jamaica um, under the guidance of... Um, Island Records chief um, uh, Chris Blackwell, who is, is a guy that comes up in, in Martin's life story quite a bit. Um, he was the founder of Island Records, and 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 Chris Blackwell was a, a British guy who had spent a lot of his childhood in Jamaica, so he was drawn to reggae and like even like early ska, you know. And a lot of yeah, obviously, you know, Bob Marley was on Island Records, you know. I mean, he yeah. he 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 really put reggae on the map in terms of making well, not not he wasn't you know of making it popular to a wider audience right. outside of jamaica chris blackwell had a lot to do with that right and chris blackwell you know discovered john martin way back as early as like the late 60s and he always just really believed in him you know he was one of those chris blackwell for an industry person seems like one of the good guys you know oh, yeah dude, yeah uh, i mean the traffic records i think yeah on island and yep there are so many good island records that, yeah, we as musician, as music fans, we owe Chris Blackwell absolutely attitude. I think he um, took the he took the long view with people. You know what I mean? Yeah. An artist like, hey, if it if it's not working right now, it, it he'll eventually get where they will eventually get where it needs to go. And um, he believed in that with Martin. You know, he was one of the people that I think introduced Martin to a wider audience, but also really, you know, kept it going and like believed in this vision that you know. Martin would probably say he never maybe fully achieved and was kind of working on maybe his whole life. Even his last few albums even have kind of like trip hop type influences on them. Um, but, you know, he, he, he put out this album called one world, um, which is where he started to mess around with the echo plex a lot more. And he worked one world was recorded in Jamaica and he was down there and he met Lee scratch Perry and, you know, they really hit it off and, you know, they were, um, I think they both probably had recreational uh, interest as well. I think um, Martin and Lee Scratch Perry, and um, you know that's 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 the album One World. That's that's probably my second favorite after Solid Air because it um, it he really just took things in, in in quite a different direction with One World and was really doing some innovative stuff on there with um, with effects. Uh, that just people, just people just hadn't done before. Yeah, and, the, yeah. The, the first time I ever heard John Martin was there was a movie back in the 90s, a very low budget regional movie called Scrapple that was released mm. in Colorado. Mm-hmm. And um, on the soundtrack, it had uh, Over the Hill off of Solid. Ah, yeah, yep. And so that was my first introduction to John Martin. And I was like, Son of a bitch. It's one of those songs when you first hear it, you're just like, fuck, that's a good song. Yeah. Like, like it's one of those songs where as a song, you know, not I was ever a songwriter, but you're like, fuck, that's a great song. Yeah, that's yeah. one of those songs shit like that. Yeah, like yeah. I, I, I could only ever hope to write a song halfway that good. Mm-hmm. And um, that whole like you said that may be the most accessible john martin album 
between um yeah the the title track solid air which i don't know if we noted i mean he always said that that song was a tribute to nick drake right right yeah because nick drake had just died Mm -hmm. a year or so before that and um that song also has the heavy use on the echoplex on i'd rather be the devil which (laughs) which is an old blues song yeah by, yeah by skip james yeah and so um Parts of that album are really folky, like a song like like Over yeah. the Hill, and then like parts of it are like the Shaft soundtrack. You know right? what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's just so good. Um, yeah, I'm sorry, Levi, I cut you off. No, no. It just, yeah. I wanted to note those those mentions those two songs before we got too far away from Solid Air, and yeah. um, they just, yeah, like again, thank God for Chris Blackwell to have that kind of a. A belief in an artist mm-hmm. and that and that to be the time because nowadays there's no way a record label would let someone make that diverse of an album and and, and have that kind of a support absolutely yeah yeah no he, he he owed a lot to chris black well a lot of people did but um yeah so you know again solid air is my favorite it's a good for people that are uninitiated with them and i have to admit i don't I, I'm not tooting my own, our own horns here. I, I, when I, when I talk to people about him and people that I consider, you know, more knowledgeable about music than the average concert goer or person walk, you know, walking down the street, they don't, they don't know who he is. A lot of people, you know, um, his albums did okay in the UK, but, um, never, never really charted in the States and he never really garnered that much of an American, uh, audience. um, one of my other favorite records of his is is from a different time, and it's probably his most autobiog- autobiographical record. And I want to note here before I get into it, um, you know, before I get into talking about that record, um, a difficult guy, you know. I mean, we're, uh, you know, a pretty volatile guy with um, a lot of issues and a temper and, uh, quite frankly, a, a lifelong drinker. You know, um, he's he's definitely was was a drunk, um, you know, and 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 certainly uh, partied pretty hard throughout his life um, and probably really he. Well, I shouldn't say probably he he tested the boundaries. And uh, if I were Beverly, I do not blame her for divorcing him. Let's put it that way from <laughs> no, what I read. Yeah. One, yeah. One quick thing with that that was kind of a shame was the fact that. She was a talented artist as well. Yeah, really good. And when he kind of got a little bit of popularity, he basically forced her to stay home. Yeah, yeah, not a great because they did do a little bit of a tour together on mm -hmm. those Stormbringer albums. Yeah, but he he kind of got controlling really fast and basically made her stay at home and have the kids and watch the house and the family. He was possessive. He didn't want to share the spotlight either. You yeah, know, he was. He was. Yeah, he was. Listen, a, a, a tough character. Let's put it that way. You know, um, imperfect person certainly by all means. Um, and it, like Levi said, you know, it's a little bit unfair. It's well, obviously the, the domestic situation, but it's it's unfair to her too because, you know, he often overshadows her, even though she was very talented in her own right. Um, you know, I guess they were. Next to Richard and Lindsay Thompson, like Brit Roll, Brit folk celebrity couple, I guess, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and you know, he he was really uh um the, the album, sorry, to, to hop back for a second, guys. The third album of his that is probably my favorite is um his uh his album from um uh nineteen eighty, which is uh is called um Grace and Danger, which is 
as I mentioned, it, it, right around the time of the um, his marriage dissolving, you know, him and Beverly breaking up at the start of the decade. And it's um, I will warn you, Grace and Danger is not an uplifting record. Uh, he's in a pretty dark place during it, but it's I really like the production on it. And um, he worked with uh, he worked with Phil Collins on on Grace and Danger. Phil Collins was another kind of lifelong fan of, of Martin's and really believed in what he was doing. Um, so Phil plays drums and I think produced grace and danger as well. He was also going through a painful divorce. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There's a couple, there's a couple, there's a couple British drunks right there going through a divorce. Yeah. Right. So, uh, let's just say, um, uh, Phil and John were there for last call in 1980, I think. Um, and, uh, you know, that album, um, I really like as well because it, it exists in those albums where even though it came out in 1980, it kind of sounds like a 70s record still, you know? There's some hints of the 80s production kind of starting to creep in a little bit that you'd hear more on Glorious Fool, which also I think is pretty good. And then Well Kept Secret, which is where an 80s sound becomes a little too much. You know, the 80s records, Well Kept Secret, Sapphire, Piece by Piece. Um, I can find some things I like on those records, but they're just they're evocative of the time, you know. Um, so he was always I mentioned Phil Collins. He was um, so check out Grace and Danger as well, because I think I think that's his well, last, well and the, that's his last the, great record in my opinion. I mean, you could almost call a companion album was at that time Phil Collins's face value face value. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Listen to those back to back. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you're ever getting divorced, yeah. Back to your divorce. Right. Right. Um, supposedly that album should have came out in like 79. Right. But it was so depressing that Chris Blackwell wouldn't release it. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He was he even tested Chris Blackwell's patients there. Or, um, yeah fandom but you know he i mentioned phil collins he was um martin was kind of a musician's musician you know always kind of more popular with other musicians than maybe the record buying public you know he had some big name fans like i mentioned um and he collaborated with a lot of them eric clapton steve winwood you know winwood plays keyboards on one world and i think he plays on sapphire as well um you know um uh, Paul Kossoff from Free, you know, he he worked with as well a little bit. Um, there's a, a Live at Leeds record um, of Martin from like 76 or so. No, 75. Yeah, because it was close to the time Paul Kossoff died, um, where Paul Kossoff comes out. It's badass. Um, as you can imagine, another guy who's become one of my favorite guitarists in recent years. But, um, you know, the song May You Never that first drew me to Martin, it's been covered quite a bit. It's on Slow Hand. Clapton covers it. Mm-hmm. Um, Kathy Matea covered it, like, in the 90s. And then the Bellamy Brothers actually covered it as well um, in the late 70s, uh, which I actually really like their version of it. I think it's kind of fun. Um, so, yeah, you know, he always he always had famous fans. Um, you know, that didn't always translate into album sales. But, um, you know, he... Uh, he definitely touched a lot of people um, still. And I, I, I think that the author of the book that I'm reading, um, Small Hours, um, uh, this guy, um, Graham Thompson, I think said really about um, Martin really well. I'm just going to read just one short paragraph from it from the intro. It says, Martin's best songs travel down or up or around and around, but rarely in a straight line. Melodies blossom and then wilt. Time signatures stretch and snap. Rhythms steam, bubble, and deliquesce. 
He loved water and he used it again and again as a lyrical and musical motif. It is the element which best fits the sounds he created. Ripples, waves, currents, eddies, rocks plunging, stones skimming, whirlpools boiling. He drew fat circles in the wet sand, surrendered his anchor to tidal drift, echoed the irregular patter of the snowmelt. That's good nice. copy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a really good way to, to describe John's music. So um, I hope uh, I hope if you're if you're unfamiliar with him, I hope I hope uh, this turns you on to it and, and you can find as much joy in his catalog as I have. So, well, yeah, hell of a class, guys. Yeah. Nice yeah. work. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so everybody check out the cat. We'll, we'll be posting, you know, we'll get a playlist together and, and, and post on social some um, some of our favorite tracks and, and stuff from Ecstasy and Terry Allen and John Martin. Um, so, yeah, a lot of fun tonight, guys. Uh, really in, enjoyed learning more about these artists. And uh, my uh, my listening over the last months to been planning this episode has been really strong you know like <laughs> really been listening to these three these these three groups it's fun to do the deep dives yeah absolutely <laughs> absolutely so uh i want to remind everybody you can check us out at rockchew.com you can find all of our episodes there we're on all of the fa- your favorite podcast apps including spotify as well so please uh give us a listen there um and yeah we're uh excited to be with you again and look forward to the next episode have a good night peace